Welcome to Local Selection, the podcast on a quest to make local representation sexy. I'm Brian Hastert, and our guest today is the Democratic candidate for Georgia's Secretary of State, B. Wynn. Every office that we talk about on this podcast matters. That's like the whole point of the show, to educate people about the power of offices like city council or county recorder and the palpable difference in our lives between when an awesome person holds that office versus when an asshole does. The difference lives in everything from a single individual's rights to our collective destiny on this planet. The office that today's guest is running for, Georgia Secretary of State, straddles that line as much as any other that we've talked about this year. The job of a state secretary of state varies from state to state, and up until a few years ago, it was uh, just not a position that many of us thought about at all. But some of us, of course, have been way out ahead on this. You can go back to our episode 11 to hear Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson lay out some of the stakes. She's the one who wrote the book more than a decade ago about how state secretaries of state are the guardians of democracy. Among their many powers and responsibilities, Georgia's Secretary of State has a huge say in who gets to vote in Georgia and how voting happens. And as we all now know, whoever gets to vote in Georgia gets to determine not only who is in charge in Georgia, but also has a pretty big say in who runs the executive and legislative branches of the United States federal government. It was Georgia's special runoff election that changed control of the U.S. Senate. Without Georgia's voters, it is likely the Senate would never have confirmed Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Georgia is pivotal, and it has always been, honestly. I know I already gave out a homework assignment to revisit an earlier episode, but you can go back to my intro to episode 14 for a refresher on the KKK's assassination of George Ashburn during Reconstruction, because he was trying to codify universal voting rights into the Georgia state constitution, and the white supremacists knew that if they lost Georgia, they were done. The battle for the soul of Georgia remains pretty much the same in many ways today. You'll hear me say in the interview that I view Brian Kemp's victory for the governor of Georgia in 2018 as stolen. Well, here's a quickie as to why. Brian Kemp was already serving as the Secretary of State of Georgia whilst running for governor. In 2017, he purged 560,000 voters from the rolls because they hadn't voted often enough for the Secretary of State's liking. That purge mostly affected Democrats. He led another pre-election purge of 53,000 voters for violating a new exact match rule in which a typo or clerical error could cost you your rights. You'll hear B address this in the interview because she confronted it head-on at the time. But that's not all. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights found that leading up to the 2018 election, Georgia was the only state since the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 to implement all of the top five nastiest voter suppression measures. Voter ID laws, proof of citizenship requirements, purges, cutting early voting, and selectively closing polling places. Much of this was spearheaded from the office of Georgia Secretary of State, and Brian Kemp ultimately won his election by about 55,000 votes. A lot of this data and more is compiled in a fantastic investigation of the 2018 Georgia governor's race in APM Reports, and I'll, of course, link to that in the show notes. Today's guest, B. Wynn, has been fighting against these efforts since she took office. She is diligent, she is thorough, she is tenacious, and she means business when it comes to fighting for people's rights. She is currently serving the Georgia State Legislature, where she sits in Stacey Abrams' old seat. And when we spoke last year, she was at the very beginning of her Secretary of State campaign. I was lucky to catch her before the campaign frenzy set in. We spoke in the living room of her lovely home. And since we talked, she has won the Democratic primary and will face off against the current incumbent Secretary of State in the general election on November 8th, in what is sure to be an incredibly competitive race. And for those of you who are unsure how to pronounce B's last name, I checked. You say it like Win, W-I-N, Win. I've had a very super fun day of interviews today, like oh, good. alarmingly fun. Who did you talk to today? I spoke with Park Cannon this morning, first thing, uh, like Park. 8 a.m. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, I know who that is and I, I yeah. uh, but like I was, I was like emotional the whole time because I just was like, oh my God, you, you are there <laughs> fighting for people and this is making me so happy. 
and then uh, and then I talked with uh, with Liliana Bakhtiari, yeah. whose signs I saw as I was coming yeah. to your place. Yeah. Are we in the, the district that she's yeah, in? Yeah, we are. There you go. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and then I talked with uh, Steffi Kuntz yeah. in Doraville. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, she's awesome. He's yeah. totally. We had, a yeah. bowl, we had a hilarious <laughs> conversation. And yeah. of course, it was an hour and nine minutes, like a very yeah. long conversation. And then I finally stopped it. And then two seconds later, she told the most incredible anecdote about growing up racing 120 mile an hour go-karts and realizing that she's a winner. And I was like, why didn't you say that <laughs> while I was recording? <laughs> anyway, we had a ball. And so, and now I'm here with you and I could not be more excited. I mean, I could not be more excited. <laughs> 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 so um, I learned some things yeah. when I was doing my little bit of reading. Yeah. Um, I learned that you are the first Democratic Asian American woman to hold a state level office in the whole state of Georgia. Yes. And you were elected four years ago. Yeah. Which is, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, so <laughs> the year before, Representative Sam Park, who um, I, ra I ran his campaign in 2016, and he was the first Democratic AAPI person ever to be elected at a state level in Georgia, too, and first openly gay man. And so I, when wow. he won his race, I was his chief of staff. So I was working with him at the Capitol and everybody thought I was his wife or his sister because they were not used to seeing Asian women at the Capitol. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it's been, it, I mean, it has been a very, it can be a very lonely space, but we went from, in 2016, we went from one Asian elected official and now we have five Asian Democratic election wow. officials. Wow. Yeah. That is so, a fast turnaround. I know. So 2016 was Sam, and then I got elected in 2017, and then Senator Sheikh Rahman got elected in 2018, and then Senator Michelle Au got elected last year, and so did um, Representative Marvin Lim. And it's been so much better because there's this, you know, people would always think that only the Asian and Latino reps should care about immigration, right? And so we were, like, carrying and leading on all of the immigrant related things as well as everything else that we care about right um and then also there's an expectation that the two asian american elected officials had to do all the outreach in the state of georgia for every single asian community Jeez. so it's a lot yeah <laughs> yeah and there's like that weird burden you know as i've talked to some uh, folks in other states who have broken kind of like respective demographic mm -hmm. glass ceilings what i tend to pick up is like a sense of like yes i'm i'm very proud to have like yeah. been this person but also, like, I'm ready to talk about a bunch of other stuff, and I'm ready to, like, now that I've opened the door, I'm ready to take the door off the hinges and, like, throw in the trash. Right, right. Because it's one of those, I mean, it, we always say representation is important, but then when you're in a space and you're, like, one of the, I was the only Asian woman, period, out of 236 elected officials, you understand, like, why there needs to be increased representation. Because I alone, you know, cannot carry the issues of all Asian women in the state of Georgia. And there is that expectation. And, you know, I mean, the Asian community is very diverse. We're not a monolith. I'm Vietnamese, but there was an expectation that I was supposed to do the outreach for every single Asian ethnicity in the state of Georgia. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I hate to bring up something very, uh, so, of so much gravity so early in our conversation, yeah. but, you know, it strikes me that it was maybe fortuitous is not quite the right word, but like it was in a way that you happened to be in office this past year or, yeah. or just recently when that shooting happened. Right. Was that, it was very close by here, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, significant that that was uh, targeted Asian women and Asian American women. Right. And I know that you had pushed to have that classified and pursued as a hate crime. Yeah. Can you just talk about how that went for you and w whether you got any pushback? Yeah, I mean, it was extremely emotional and it was really hard. I mean, it was a very brutal and violent, um, they were brutal and violent shootings. And the more we learned about what happened, the worse it got. I mean, these were highly vulnerable women working in vulnerable industries during a pandemic. And it took several days to even find out who some of the women were. And then when we found out who some of the women were, um, we know that one of the victims, the only living family members she has in the United States are her two boys. And then there was another victim um, where we were not able to identify any living family members in the United States. And the community had to come together and, and have 
her funeral for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was just so many layers to that story. It was like the breakdown in police response, not having translators on site. So there, there's that one case in Cherokee County where the husband of one of the victims was detained in the back of a police car, a Spanish speaker, and he was held for hours while his wife lay dying inside. Yeah. And in Atlanta, one of the victim's husbands, who is a Korean speaker, showed up and could not communicate to law enforcement and proceeded to attempt CPR on his wife, who was probably presumed dead at the moment and unable to get support from somebody who's supposed to be there to help you. Mm. Um, And so all these small details emerged. There was one of the women who wasn't a victim who worked at the same spa said that it just happened so decisively at close range in the head. And she said her coworkers didn't even have time to respond. There were no last words. It was just like silent. And so we're hearing more and more about what actually happened. And it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And meanwhile, we have Cherokee County coming out and saying the perpetrator had a bad day. And, you know, trying to assign blame to, you know, what the suspect in custody alleges to be a sex addiction. So we have all these things layered on top of each other. And it was very clear to me the deliberate targeting of Asian businesses. He knew who was going to be there. It was said that he frequented these establishments and he drove 40 minutes from one location to the next and then walked across the street to the third location. And anyone who lives in Atlanta knows that you just don't go from Cherokee County to Atlanta for no good reason. Mm. Um, And so it was very clear to me that it was a, an act of violence based on race and gender. And I was very vocal about that. And I, you know, here's where I get conflicted. I feel like a, I feel like hate crimes is a prosecutorial tool. It doesn't prevent anything from happening. It doesn't address the root cause. Right. But I feel like it is important um, in the sense that in a judicial system, it recognizes that sexism, racism, xenophobia, um, homophobia, um, Islamophobia, all of those things, they can and are deadly, and that people do commit crimes against people for immutable characteristics. And, and I, I also feel that in addition to the crimes committed against the, the victims who died, any other Asian woman in the area, I mean, any Asian woman in any part of this country who read those news heard that. It was, you know, like the, the effect of a hate crime is, is a psychological attack on anybody who shares those immutable characteristics. Right. It's... Um it's designed to terrorize communities as wholes. And we have a history in this country of trying to say that those things don't exist, that they're not part of who we are. And we constantly try to erase that. And we see that through other cases that happen here in America. And so I felt it was important to acknowledge that through the judicial system, that yes, all of these things exist in our country. And when we do not address them, they do become deadly. So I was very vocal about it. And, you know, the response was, on one hand, just overwhelming support from people, and especially my my colleagues from the Black Legislative Caucus, um, the Georgia NAACP, my black friends, they reached out to me immediately and they said, we have your back, we know how you feel, we know too well this pain. And then on the other hand, the people who pushed back, you know, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around what would cause somebody who doesn't know me to, you know, send me an email or comment on social media or whatever and essentially say that the women deserve to die in some way or degraded the victims in some way because they don't want to admit that systemic racism and misogyny exists. And so the default was to victim blame. Right. If this crime happened and someone is to blame for it, but it can't possibly be that racism or sexism drive 
hateful behavior. I can't, I mean, if, if I admit that, then my whole worldview crumbles. So if somebody's to blame, it must be the victims. They must the only option left, right? Right. And we wow. see that a lot in police brutality cases. Yeah. And we see that a lot when victims are black. It's just any excuse to justify why that person was killed, except to acknowledge that we have to address the systemic racism in our country. Right. And I just want to ask this question because I believe that we'll probably wind up with other circumstances with people like yourself who are pushing to, to recognize hate crimes or things like that. And there's always just terrible pushback. What does helpful support feel like? What does it look like? You mentioned some of how, how your, some of your black colleagues or black friends reached out and, and offered support in a particular way. Are there other ways that people who, are, who want to show support so to help kind of stand you up as you are the, the front of uh, that fight in a particular way that can, can offer that support? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um I think it's really important to continue the work of solidarity building and to always be present for these movements that generally tend to have the most support around a really horrific incident and don't feel like that support is as present when people are alive, right? And I've heard this a lot in communities of color is like why don't you care about us when we're alive? Why is it only after somebody dies? What about uplifting people as they are here trying to do the work? And so I think that's an important part of it, like how we support and celebrate and uplift people. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the Black and Asian community to do more community building, healing, and more solidarity building. And then I think there's tremendous opportunity, and I think this is already happening, but the push for telling history in schools. Something really startling to me is most Americans don't know the history of Asian people in our country. And they can name certain things like incarceration of Japanese Americans or Chinese real workers, but when you look at the history over time, I mean, we had an exclusion act that excluded an entire continent of people that was in place for decades and then citizenship was tied to the ability to vote and Asians were excluded from being able to gain citizenship and Asian people were also not allowed to own land we weren't allowed to interracially marriage so there's a long history of Asian people in this country being treated as less than a full person and certainly there are differences in the way that different groups have been treated mm. in the history of our country. But we have to remember that those distinct differences, they are important and we should recognize them. But we should also remember that they stem from the same system of trying to exclude everybody from gaining any kind of power or even from being able to just live your life fully. Right. I mean, I'm glad it's just sort of a coincidence that we like snuck this interview in at the end of May. Yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. API yeah. month, you know? Yeah. I think it's important for, for me, for the purpose of this podcast at least, to mention like so many of the, uh, some of those things you mentioned are federal level, right? The, the yeah. internment of Japanese Americans was, yep. was a federal thing. Yeah. The Chinese Exclusion Act was a federal thing. Yep. But some of the places where Asians and Asian Americans were, were like hit the hardest and denied, you know, the most rights were, were state level decisions. I know that in California where I now reside, had some of the worst, most restrictive, most anti-Asian laws on the books. You know, California, good old blue, liberal, whatever, yeah. California, uh, through like a good portion of the 20th century, starting in the 19th century. And they began repealing those before some other states did, but like some really restrictive stuff. I know another thing that you're so um, passionate and active about has been uh, voter rights. Mm -hmm. You led the charge to, there was a, a specific anti-voter, uh, the, the signature match situation? The exact match. So, the exact yeah. match, yeah. Can you yeah. want to talk about that? Yeah, so when we create policies around voting, mm -hmm. oftentimes they are created in such a way where they look like they may make logical sense on the surface. But unfortunately, a lot of these laws also have nefarious uh, intent and intended consequences. And those intended consequences impact voters of color the most. And so on its surface, if I were to tell you, hey, your voter registration has to exactly match the name that you have on the driver's license, that 
seems to make sense. Any random passerby might be like, sure, yeah, my yeah, name should that match. Makes sense. Otherwise, Why how not? else will you know it's me, right? Exactly. Uh-huh. However, in this particular law, it doesn't account for any kind of clerical error. So a last name like mine, people tend to invert the G and the Y because the way our brains are wired. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, people probably do it so often and they never realize they're misspelling it. Um, our brains are just not wired to put a G-U-Y next to, and G-U-Y next to each other. So my, mis- my last name is misspelled often. And so here you are as a voter. So you fill out your um, voter registration application. You send it in to the Secretary of State's office. You spell everything right. And then the person inputting everything into the system switches a letter in your last name. Then your voter registration is just frozen and then was put in a place to be purged in an, in an accelerated manner. And that would happen to people with non-Anglo names. Also, it would happen to people who had a name change because they got married. And also, uh, erroneous hyphens, erroneous, uh, what's this, an apostrophe, mm-hmm. all of those things would throw your name into this, would freeze your voter registration. Right, so Anne Smith is a lot less likely to have a clerical error enter her name right. than names that are a, a, a sort of like Anglo or Germanic or whatever, the, the names yeah. that white people are really familiar with. Yeah, exactly. So I actually remember this law being passed. It was in 2017. Stacey Abrams was my state rep. She was speaking in the well against it, and she said, this is going to disproportionately impact voters of color. And then it turned out to be true. So in 2018... 53,000 people who registered to vote were held in pending status. And they had, it was the onus was on them to uh, fix the clerical error, or they would be placed in an accelerated line to get purged off the voter rolls. You couldn't just simply show up at the polls and say, here's my ID. You guys just spelled it wrong. This is who I am. And that happened to 53,000 Georgians, and 80% of them were voters of color. Wow. So, I did. I worked to over to overturn that, and I knew that I wanted to work on that legislation because I understood it, and I understood how it impacts everyday Georgians. And the General Assembly actually helped me be able to overturn it because they kept spelling my last name wrong. Oh, my God. Yeah, so they spelled my last name wrong in three different places on the state house website and spelled it incorrectly in three different ways. And then Those every the, time— The most fortuitous name, Ms. Dawes, <laughs> you've ever encountered— and then every time we have a committee they would send us a committee notice to say you have this committee meeting so i saved every single committee meeting notice because my last name was spelled wrong in all of those and i sat through 11 and a half hours of committee hearing and testified and brought my stack of misspelled last names that was sent to me by my committee chair and i was like this is why we can't have a law like this based on clerical error you're like bro you did this. Exactly. You did this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, that's how voter suppression laws work. Right. They, on the surface, you put a law together and you say, this makes total sense. But you understand how it would play out potentially. Right. And you then have, it does. You have people doing really minute data work, like data mining, like how, and, and gaming it, like running the scenarios. Mm-hmm. How is this going to play out? You know, I mean, I think it's, I, I don't want to get too big into symbolism, but you said that Stacey Abrams was your rep before. Yeah. And when she resigned, this is, it's her seat that you now hold. Yeah. I mean, in this state, that's like a, that's a gigantic, you know, seat to occupy. Oh, I know. It's my only street cred. Most of the time people are like, oh, you're a state rep. Yeah, I represent District 89 at Atlanta DeKalb. And, you know, you get the whole uh-huh. glazed over look. And then I go... It's the seat formerly held by Stacey Abrams, and then everybody's face lights up. That's a famous person. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I know. And then they always say, you have big shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry to have played into the stereotype. Yeah. But, but no, also, it's true, though. But it, I mean, I, I think that, like, what an amazing way to, especially given the, the things that you have been fighting for, you know, what an amazing way to just elevate the work that you're already doing by, by matching it to somebody who so powerfully fought for those same ideals, mm-hmm. or who still continues to fight, but right. just from that seat. You yeah. know what I, mean? I don't know how politic it is for you, like in the body you serve in and everything, 
when I talk about the the last Georgia gubernatorial race, I I speak about it as a stolen election. Like I don't know how else to talk about it when I yeah. when I review the tape. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. Like, oh yeah, the person who was in control of the voting mechanisms rigged the voting mechanisms in his favor and hundreds of thousands of votes, and that's what happened. I mean, h- how do you talk about it amongst yourselves and your colleagues? Or I mean, maybe you don't even see it like that. Or maybe right. I'm I'm curious as to like how it looks from your from your vantage point. Well, I mean, I think it's the recognition that voter suppression has always been in place, right? Yeah. And the our country was founded on the right to vote for only like one very narrow group of people. And yeah. you had to be a white landowner and only men yeah. could own land yeah. that were white. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you look at the history of our country, those gains to be able to vote were made over time. And they were made because people fought and died for it. So we've always been we've always been in a position where it's like we keep having to push to make gains. And when the Voting Rights Act, the Preclearance Act, was gutted, then we started to see states being able to roll back voting rights. And so in a state like Georgia, where it's been Republican rule, we have no we have known that we are always facing voter suppression bills and we've seen it i mean america has seen the long lines that we've had and you know we use the example of voters who waited 11 hours to vote right you think about that that is longer than your work day i don't know i don't know any adult who can take 11 hours out of their day to vote without having to rearrange all these other things in their life. Yeah, what do, what do you have kids? What if you have to what a if you job? Have bad knees? What if you have yeah, yeah. The, like anything that regular people have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's not there's nobody could reasonably say, "Oh yeah, taking 11 hours out of my day to stand in line is a reasonable thing to do," right? Perfectly. 11 hours is completely egregious. But so is 4 hours. Nobody should have to wait 4 hours to vote. That's right. And quite frankly, so is 2 hours. So, I'm like you know, we've seen what that looks like. We recognize, like, when we, as we've been organizing in Georgia, that there's always an uphill battle to climb. And that part of the strategy is the voter education to make sure we can overcome some of the laws that exist in place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was more obvious in, when Brian Kemp was overseeing his own elections. But that's not new. I mean, that is not new to the state of Georgia. The idea that laws are in place to make it harder to vote for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also very easy for some people to vote, right? Exactly. Withholding machines from certain areas and having just lots and lots of machines, extra machines in some areas. <laughs> right. And so it's not like it was ever new to us. And also like, you know, the conversations about um, voter ID, right? So on the surface, the average person would probably think, yeah, it makes sense to have voter ID when you're voting by mail and that you would just simply input your driver's license number on a form. And if you use some other form of ID, you make a photocopy and put it in the mail. And they said 97% of registered voters have a driver's license. And I'm like, well, let's learn about the history of documentation, birth certificates, who got access to their documents, how hard it is for some people to be able to get a form of identification. And so that 3% and still actually 3% of registered voters is still a lot. Yes. That's a, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's many, many people. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's tens of thousands of people. Yes. So, but then you think about everyone who's unable to register to vote, which is a harder metric and number to come up with. Right. But it is not easy to get an ID. You have to have a birth certificate, a social security number. In fact, I've been working on this bill um, the last couple of years. It's um, a driver's license for all bill or ID card for all, mm. which essentially expands the documents that are acceptable to submit to the Department of Driver Services. Because mm. if you look at the actual documents, they're really limited, right? It's birth certificate and social security and passport. passport. Yeah. And those are not accessible for everybody. Mm. And there are systemic reasons why that exists. So one is obviously slavery and documentation and who is allowed to have birth certificates and records and things like that. So Mm. if you talk to the black community, you will hear stories of people saying, my grandmother never had access to her birth certificate. Um, And then documentation is also very hard for people facing homelessness. 
It is also very hard for people who um, are formerly incarcerated. It's very hard for immigrants who are here on any kind of visa that have legal status but are not quite citizens yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a number of people who just cannot get a driver's license or a state ID because we have such limited avenues to be able to get it. And there's a long history of like why those things exist too. And we know that not being able to get an ID properly is not just a barrier as it pertains to voting. It's a barrier for housing. It's a barrier for jobs. For bank accounts. For everything. For everything. Yeah. And so it's hard to have those very lengthy, nuanced conversations during legislative session when something like that is being brought up Mm. because they're ramming a 98-page bill into committee very rapidly in a 40-day legislative session. And there are so many parts of the bill you have to address that you can't get to all of those things. But it is not easy to get an ID. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And also, like, you know, if you're looking for, like, the DMVs and things, I know that... Yes. The one notorious strategy is closing them. Just close them in the certain parts of town. Yes. You know, just like yeah. make sure that there's a DMV over in the Beverly Hills of your neighborhood. Right. And then make sure that there's only that one or there's right. one or the next one's 250 miles away or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, and if you yep. don't have if if you don't have a car. Yes. First of all, why would you want a license anyway? You don't exactly. have a car. Second of all, how are you going to get there to get an ID? You know, it's just. Right. All of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so here you are in. The state that is, I think, a lot of the country sort of recognizes as um, as ground zero for for voting rights, and you have decided to run for a new office from this already very important chair you occupy, and you're gonna you're running for Secretary of State of Georgia, and that election is this year as well. Next year. Oh, that's next year. Yeah. Oh, it's the municipal things that right. this year. Or I would not be talking to you at this moment. Because you would be very busy. Um, <laughs> I'd be like knocking on some doors or traveling throughout Georgia. Right, yeah. right. Oh, I'm glad I got you earlier. Wow. <laughs> so, so uh, like we, ju- we just named one past Georgia Secretary of State, you know, which is an, an infamous name as far yeah. as I'm concerned. For people who don't know, can you just say what a Secretary of State does in the state of Georgia and, and why you think it's important for you to get into that office? Yeah. Well, the Secretary of State oversees um, seven different divisions, and they um, include licensures, corporations, and cemeteries, funerals, um, charities, securities, and the most important one that most people talk about is elections, right? I mean, it's an office that touches the lives of millions of Georgians. And um, right now, as we are battling these efforts to subvert democracy that we're seeing across the country, the role of the Secretary of State becomes even more important than it was before. Um, and certainly their role as the chief elections officer um is really, really critical. Now, people have asked me, so the Senate Bill 202 just passed and it strips the Secretary of State of his power. What can you still do? Oh, I didn't even realize. Oh my God, that's some, remember when the North Carolina state legislature, when they lost the governor's mansion, they're like, oh cool, there's not a Republican <laughs> in the governor's mansion anymore. We're gonna take all the power away from the governor. So they yeah. did that, that here with the Secretary of State believing that this might happen here too. I think it's a combination of both, right? They're preparing for 2022, so they want to take opportunities where they can to, you know, strip power. But also, I think it was a response from the radicalism that we see in the Republican Party where they wanted to punish the current secretary of state for upholding the law when it pertains to elections. Right, right. So So they took power. Yeah, Yeah, so they took away the power of the secretary of state. Um, as it pertains to having a seat on the state elections board, which is responsible for passing emergency laws and other functions that are related to elections. Um, And my response is, look, there is still so much you can do as Secretary of State without doing anything legislatively and without that role. Obviously, the role of being able to be a voting member of that board is critically important. And so there has to be efforts from our side of the aisle to regain that power in the Mm. future. Mm. Um, But as it stands now, I'll give you just one example of something the Secretary of State can do that does not require any legislative changes. He, I mean, the Secretary of State should be a leader that works with all 159 counties, and he does not do that. 
we see him deflect responsibility, blame local election boards and officials, and not come to the table and say, how can we work through these challenges? He has not adequately trained 159 counties as it pertains to elections and has not adequately resourced them. And so I noticed this pattern of local elections officials being hesitant to testify in our committees because they're afraid that there's going to be something punitive against them. And that is not a good leader. Mm. A good leader will come to the table with you and say, all right, how can we move forward and figure out how we can solve these issues at hand so that we have efficient elections in all 159 counties? Mm -hmm. And simply by changing that model of punitive to collaborative, we can make a whole lot of changes in the Secretary of State's office when it comes to elections. So by, by virtue of being the chief elections officer, the Secretary of State of Georgia oversees all the county elections officers, boards? I mean, what, what are the sort of understructures that the secretary is the chief of? Well, the secretary of state, uh, you know, should be responsible for ensuring that there's training across the board. Right, right now, it's very um, inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And so we see that in some counties, you'll have some elections workers that just are so good at the job and they know exactly what to do. And then in other places, um, they may not understand the law as well, which it's understandable because there's a lot of changes that happen all the time. Sure. And if there's not an investment in training, then there's going to be uneven just responses to how election workers understand the law and carry it out. So increasing that training and making sure that it's standardized across the board and much better than what exists now is really important. And we've actually been asking for that. And I think it's has been, I mean, I feel like it was a bipartisan discussion. Like, all right, this training needs to be broadened and, it looks so different from county to county. So that's one thing. The second thing mm. is um, the funding and the resources and the allocations of equipment. Remember, there is a smaller county in um, Georgia who requested a, an additional scanner for one of the elections to scan the ballots. And the Secretary of State's office said, no, you have to pay for it yourself. And it was like $12,000 for a scanner for the small elections department. So really figuring out like, how do we equip these election boards with the resources? Mm -hmm. And how do we help them with their training and make sure that everybody is equipped in every single county? I just read recently that there's supposed to, there's like going to be some kind of new, uh, what do you call it, auditing or something of the Georgia? Like, there's a, is that a new lawsuit or what's the? It's a new lawsuit. <laughs> Look. No, the a, ballots have been counted three times. Yeah, no, this is some, I mean, this is deeply, deeply bogus. It's like right. clear, right? It's like, a Fulton all, County one. What's yeah. happening in, in Arizona? I mean, it's it's all it's yeah. all this stuff, right? It's yeah. the attempt to sort of find new votes or whatever. Right. Or discredit. Or, or discredit, yeah. The, the ones that Cause, are Cause, like, so the seeds of doubt to right. uphold the big lie situation. I'm like, we have gone through three counts and it, the result is the same. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the big lie. It's yeah, the, it's, the, it's the big it's, lie. Right, right, right. Does Georgia use, um, uh, or is it county by county, like optical scan? Like, are, are they paper trail? Like, you know, in all those ways of like the ways that, you know, I say as somebody who has confidence in the recent vote yeah. and not a lot of confidence in certain states' votes in previous <laughs> elections because of the various kinds of chicanery that can go on with machines and stuff. Yeah. What, what Does Georgia have a unified state approach or is it county by county? It's unified and it was actually changed in 20... 18, I think it was 2018, we replaced our old machines with new machines, and they're the Dominion machines. And mm -hmm. so when you go in, you vote on a machine, and it prints out a piece of paper that has a barcode, and then that barcode is scanned into a machine. Mm -hmm. And the machine reads the barcode. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, when we were passing this bill, Georgia Democrats did advocate for hand-marked paper ballots. Mm -hmm. because they are the most secure form of being able to keep a paper trail, right? right, right. And there was some concern about um, the barcode and not being able to see what was on that barcode. Human beings cannot check a barcode and say, right, exactly. oh, yes, I see yeah. this person's intention as right. I scan this barcode with my eyeballs. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So so there, there, was a, there were debates around that. And what is very typical, actually, um, is that when... Republicans passed Senate Bill 202, they didn't actually address 
the one thing that would have had bipartisan support, which is handmarked paper ballots. Right. Yeah. Hilarious. Um, you, you know, the one, the one other question I have about all this is, you know, when I spoke with, um, recently I spoke with Jocelyn Benson, who's the Secretary of State in Michigan. Oh, we had a call scheduled today. You and she do? Yeah. Oh, my God. Tell her I say hi. I, um, she, I think I am such a, a huge fan of yeah. her. I just think she's so smart. I, I yeah. learned something by he hearing her talk. But, you know, she wrote this book a long time ago called um, State Secretaries of State, Guardians of the Democratic Process. And um, I already sort of believed this, but after sort of our conversation and after this recent election, I'm like, oh, wow, yes, state-level secretaries of state are an office that I didn't even know existed a few years ago. We know the federal one is in charge did. of diplomacy. Right? Yeah. But this, well, that's not true, because I knew about Catherine Harris and I knew about Ken Blackwell, so yeah. I didn't, I, but I, just, I didn't think about it a lot. Yeah. But just like every other state and local office, they're going to be in charge of either dismantling white supremacy or advancing it. And that office, more than most, really has a tremendous amount of power. And that office, more than most, therefore is going to be subject to a huge volume of uh, horrible attack. Y you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, we see political attack sort of slowly and then it fits and starts ratcheting into violent attack, you know, takeovers of capitals and whatnot. Yeah. And and I <laughs> I don't mean this to sound like condescending, but like you seem like a very nice person. And I and I I'm like, how does one prepare oneself? Because I I know you don't underestimate that threat. Do you know what I mean? I, right. I know you see that for what it is. How do you prepare yourself to run to not only run for that office and mm -hmm. wage this campaign, which will, I'm sure will be very challenging. But then also, like, best case scenario, you get the office. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that even look like from where you sit now? Well, I mean, I think it's always a matter of, like, why why you're doing what you're doing, right? And why you're running. And for me, it's always been an extension of the work that I've ar I'm already doing and what I really deeply care about. And so while we were immersed in these election hearings last year and they brought Rudy Giuliani and Trump's team in, I understood what we were facing in terms of if I speak up in these committee hearings and I push back on this, I am going to be a target for uh, the right wing. And, you know, it turned out to be true. Um, my address was docs. We spent all, actually all this time ahead of time, right? Like trying to scrub. We were advised, like members of the committees, advised to scrub our address off the internet as much as we could, which is really hard. I mean, we're public officials. Our address is tied to certain uh, documents. Right. And then... Um, having a safety plan in place and we knew what was coming. Right. And so I had made the decision that I was going to legislate in the way that I have always legislated, which is push back when things are wrong. Yeah, or, stand up for people. Right. When, when exactly. You have the power to. Yeah. It's why I ran for office. I didn't run for office to shrink back in any way to make political calculations or calculations about my own safety. That's just not, why I wanted to run for office. Wow, yeah. And so it's a bigger thing than about me, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And like you said, honoring the platform means you understand like the power that you can wield as an elected official. And certainly there's a responsibility to speak up when people are attempting to erode our democracy. They are lying, just straight out lying and undermining our electoral process and just um, weakening our democracy as a whole. And so it was extremely stressful because I anticipated all those things. Um, but what ended up happening was there were so many Americans across the country who were so grateful that I pushed back and just used facts and the truth. And there was such, I mean, there was a huge outpouring of support from people from all over the country, from Georgians, um, from people who used to be Republicans until this happened, just tons of people saying, thank you, thank you, we needed that, we needed to see that, we oh. needed to see somebody stand up and push back and use facts and, yes. um, you know, poke holes in these lawsuits and lies. And then on the other hand, you know, I'm like, there's a faction of our country who call me a traitor, said I deserve to be executed, um, and then all the racial and uh, misogynistic slurs that also go along with that um, when people disagree with me. Um, and so suddenly, you know, I am making a safety plan. I'm like, okay, I got to call um, Capitol Police and I have to call 
um, my sheriff and my APD and, you know, they had to do a threat assessment and there were drive-bys by my house on a regular basis. And my neighbors were like, what's going on? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. You know, just trying to like take this seriously. Um, and we saw that same threat happening across Georgia against elections officials who were just trying to do their job against elected officials who were also just trying to do their job, not just in Georgia, everywhere. Um, and some more intense than others, right? Like I got a, like just a small little piece of it, but I know that it was much worse for other people. And I actually distinctly remember being in those election hearings and I kept texting our, the, the chair of our committee. And I kept saying, please instruct the witnesses to stop saying the name of election workers. When they go up there and they say the names of election workers, all these people streaming on Newsmax or cute, whatever media platforms they're using, right. they're going to target these election workers who are just trying to do their job. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I was like, please tell them to stop saying their names. I was like, we have to be responsible in this too and understand that lives are at stake. And it really shouldn't be like this. I'm so glad to hear you describe. I mean, I'm not glad for the experience, but I'm so glad you were willing to share with us that experience because I, I, I think it's instructive that, you know, we have, you know, like you said, so many people looked, found you, uh, online, seeing you push back on these things and, and took solace in that, right? And and s most of us have someone in public office somewhere that we're really excited about, we really look up to. And I think if people underestimate the amount of threat currently that you endure, you specifically and a, and a lot of folks in your shoes endure, then we are missing our chance to like really to play our part, to do everything we can to support you, to make sure that you have from us what you need so that you can keep doing your job, which is, you know, you're really kicking a lot of ass at. I know you have a tremendous amount of stuff to do, so I just want to ask you one more question, which is, sure. um, I would just like to ask you, with all of the things you're balancing and pursuing and fighting for on behalf of Georgians, what would you like to leave our audience with as they walk away for the day? Like, What's kind of on top of your brain? What's the most pressing thing that you want to share with people? You know, um, I think, you know, I reflect on just all of the things that have unfolded for Americans and I think the world really in the last year and a half. And it's just been really, really hard. Um, I think for many of us, um, I don't know anybody whose lives didn't drastically change under the pandemic. And then on top of that, you know, in Georgia, we had the presidential election, the two U.S. US Senate runoffs and, um, you know, last year John Lewis died. Oh, yeah. And also when I went on my one vacation, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. We learned about it from the campers next to us. Um, oh <laughs> I know. I was like, is this a joke? No way. Um, yeah. I think there's just been a tremendous amount of stress on everybody globally, right? And um, I know that most of us are still in recovery mode in terms of really trying to adjust to um, life like as we're heading back into a fuller life. And I think a lot of us need to take some time and space to really process everything that's happened over the last year and a half as we're, um, you know, going back into society and find moments of joy too, because I feel like there's been so much, like there's been an absence of joy in a lot of ways because the, this job is really hard. And when you are immersed in all of these things and you can clearly see that there are concerted attempts to weaken our country, um, you tend to throw like everything you have into it. And I think that most um, organizers feel the same way too, which is why people work so hard on the ground here in Georgia for these two U.S. Senate seats and for the presidency. Mm. And there's just like, the, there's just a feeling that there's just so much at stake all the time for Georgians and for people living in this country. And so I hope that as we continue to do this work, because I don't really see this changing a whole lot, right? I think we're going to continue to be in this battle where we are fighting against this faction of the Republican Party who, quite frankly, stands for nothing right now. Um, they're really dangerous to our country, and it's very alarming. And it really, really, I think, affects a lot of 
our mental health. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we're in this for the long haul. And as we continue to do this work here in Georgia and across the country, I really hope that people are able to find a little time and space for their personal joy and their loved ones um, and never lose sight of the fact that January 6th isn't over and these efforts to undermine our democracy are certainly not over. So if we want to see our country head in the right direction, obviously there has been some vast improvements. Um, We have to understand that we're in this for a while and be prepared for that too. Well, I, for one, am um, so glad that you are such a powerful ally in this. It's, it's clear that you're doing really important work. So thank you so much for talking with us today, for spending all time with me before the campaign got too busy. <laughs> thank you. That's it for today. This episode was produced by me, Brian Hastert, theme music by the Castell Brothers. A huge thank you to Tamara Hamilton and her fabulous hospitality while I was in Atlanta, and to Janelle Green of the Georgia Alliance for Social Justice for some key introductions. Major thanks to B. Wynn, who not only invited me into her home for the interview, but also recommended I check out El Tesoro, an excellent taqueria nearby, where, waiting in line, I ran into one of B's old high school friends, because the world is that small. You can find B on Twitter and Instagram at b for georgia And if you want to learn more about her campaign for Secretary of State or help out, her website is b4georgia.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Local Selection and Instagram at Local Selection Podcast. If you liked this stuff and you think it's important, please help us get the word out by giving us a rating and review, sharing us with a friend, and subscribing to the feed so that you can catch more new episodes when they come out. There's a bunch coming. And, of course, additionally, if you want everyone to know you think local representation is sexy, you can wear it on a t-shirt from our store. It's rad. I wear mine all the time. And lastly, please consider visiting our Patreon, where you can sign up to be a monthly supporter, even for the price of about one latte a month. It helps a ton and makes this sustainable, so I can keep bringing you these stories. Links to both the merch store and the Patreon in this episode's show notes, and on our website, localselectionpodcast.com. Thank you for joining us today, and see you next time in a new neighborhood. Thank you.